So, a little question here to consider as we dive into Mark 9 this morning. Is doubt sin? So, I'll give you a couple passages to think about here. Remember when Peter, you know, Jesus said, you know, come to me, Peter. Walk on the water. Remember that whole incident? And Peter steps out, obviously, in faith, and he's walking on the water to Jesus, but then he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks around at the wind and the waves, and he's afraid, and he starts to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. It's Matthew 14. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, it's not a total backhand or a rebuke that's too harsh, but it seems like Jesus is rebuking, correcting Peter for doubting, right? Maybe a little more clear, James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, especially in the context of suffering, if you know the previous verses, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that passage seems to be pretty clear that doubt there is sin, double-mindedness. Shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord if you have that kind of doubt. So is is doubt sin? Is all doubt the same? And besides the answers to those questions, what do we do with it? Because I think we can all struggle with doubt. At one time or another, different issues, different reasons. Sometimes we struggle, especially when we're suffering. Sometimes it's intellectual. Sometimes it's you know, circumstantial, experiential. What do we do with it? So how do we understand it and what do we do with it? And our passage is going to give us, hopefully, Lord willing, a lot of help um, along those lines. So we're in the series through the Gospel of Mark, so keep those questions in mind. We'll address them before we're done. Um, walking through the Gospel according to Mark, and the series title is King and Cross. Okay, so central to this book is the identity of Jesus and the purpose for his coming, his mission. King, that's who he is, and this king is going to be crowned, surprisingly, paradoxically, on a cross. So we're in the second half of the book now. Jesus is heading to the cross. The disciples don't understand. They've been struggling. Like their idea of a Messiah was like this political military leader who would just crush all the military political oppression and competition and set up the kingdom immediately. So they're struggling that Jesus is predicting that he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die. And then he says he's going to rise again, and they're not sure what even that means. And then last week we looked at the transfiguration. So Jesus revealed his glory like pulled the veil back in a sense to Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop. So now they've come down from the mountain 
and this is what they find. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And the first point in our outline is the weakness of the disciples here, two weak, 9, 14, and 19. And when they, again, coming down the mountain, Jesus, Peter, James, John, came to the disciples, the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. They weren't strong enough. In fact, that word for not able, or it's two words in Greek, is also used back in Mark 5. Remember the the guy who was possessed by a legion of demons. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had broken those apart time and again. No one had the strength to subdue him. Same word. So the disciples were too weak, spiritually too weak. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, So remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus came to his hometown and there was just such unbelief in his hometown. Um, He marveled at their unbelief. It's the same word here as in chapter 6, verse 6. And his response here is this, you get deep sigh. Oh, faithless generation. (laughs) Similar to Back in chapter 8, 12, where the Pharisees were arguing with Jesus, they were seeking a sign, they were testing him, and he sighed deeply there in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? So who's Jesus addressing this response to? He gets this description of what happened from this man who had brought his son to the disciples, and then Jesus says, O faithless generation. Okay, so he's referring certainly to the disciples, but it seems like he's addressing it broader than that, kind of the wider human condition of faithlessness and unbelief. So the problem is the failure to trust God, take him at his word, instead focusing on merely human possibilities, okay? And that's what Jesus keeps bumping up against over and over again. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So this isn't the first time in the Gospel of Mark that the disciples get themselves into trouble whenever Jesus is not with them. There's probably a lesson in there, but we won't explore that now. Let's move on to point two. Verses 20 to 27. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, saw Jesus... Immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So let's just pause here and note this demonic aim. Satan hates the image of God and he wants to destroy and mar and deface that image any way that he can. 
Satan's a murderer from the beginning. And here is this dear boy made in God's image and the evil one wants to destroy him. And then the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What's happened in the heart of this father? He's obviously let the failure of Jesus' disciples weaken his confidence in Jesus' ability to help. Hmm. Tracking with me? And Jesus said to him, if you can, And then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. In other words, the problem is not with Jesus. His disciples' failure does not mean his failure. So, really quickly we could say, especially in a world where how often have there been disappointing and maddening failures, moral, all kinds of scandals, and we can start to get jaded and want to turn our back on Jesus because of his followers. And we should make the distinction that Jesus is making here. Don't allow the failures of those who claim the name of Jesus to undermine your faith in Jesus. Jesus' ability is not in question here. Jesus' willingness is also not in question here, which we'll see in just a minute. It's human belief that is in question. Okay, so one commentator, R.T. France, offers some pastoral wisdom here. He writes, because again, Jesus says, something that we struggle with, all things are possible for one who believes. And obviously we know that doesn't mean, hey, if you want a new Corvette or a new, you know, beach house, all things are possible if you believe. No. So R.T. France says this, the apparent carte blanche, which is like, you know, kind of, um, oh my goodness, just blanking. Um, What does carte blanche mean? Somebody help me. Blank, uh, yeah, blank check, thank you. Um, so the apparent blank check here offered by all things are possible for one who believes, as of many other New Testament assurances about prayer, may need to be tempered by pastoral advice, okay? Like, it doesn't mean Jesus is like a genie or like a slot machine. You just, you know, put the money in, pull the lever, and you can get whatever you want. No. But it puts the emphasis where it should be on the unlimited power of God in whom faith is placed. It rules out the suggestion that any force, certainly not the present demonic opponent, can be too much for God. But such assurances naturally promote an introspective concern as to how real the petitioner's faith is, right? And the father's famously paradoxical reply captures the tortured self-doubt of many sincere prayers. So if all things are possible for him who believes, I I believe, but help, help my unbelief. Belief and unbelief are mixed 
in most of us. And perhaps Mark would encourage us to notice that this common condition proved in the event to be no obstacle to his request being granted. Are we a mixed bag? Do we struggle with faith and unbelief? Does that mean Jesus is just sick of us and we have no hope of him ever answering? Oh no, look at how he responded to this guy who was a mixed bag. I believe help my unbelief. So Mark would encourage us to notice that this common condition proved in the event to be no obstacle to his request being granted. At least he put his unbelief in the right perspective by not dwelling on it, the father that asked Jesus, but asking Jesus to help with it. His belief, however uncertain, was all that was needed. And from this point, he plays no further part in the narrative so that all the attention falls where it should on the power of Jesus. Remember, Jesus in another place says, if you have a faith, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Does that mean you can literally move a mountain? No, the point is, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the strength of the one in whom you trust. You can have superhuman, Olympic strength faith, and if you're trusting in a false god, doesn't matter. But if you have a mustard seed faith in the true almighty God, then you can move mountains because he can move mountains. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So this word unbelief actually has already shown up in our passage. It's in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. Okay, in, in Greek, same word. So basically, here's what's going on. Why do I bring that up? The father identifies himself as part of the faithless generation. He confesses both his belief and his unbelief to Jesus. And he humbly pleads for help to overcome his unbelief. So we'll come back to that, but it's important that we see that before we move on. What a beautiful picture. I mean, isn't that like even an image of what it looks like to come to faith in Christ? When you finally agree with God about your sin and your need and his ability to save you and you trust him? And isn't that what the life of faith is all about? At least what it should be, where we acknowledge our sin. If you confess your sin, if you agree with God about your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So you see, he's, he's saying, oh, I'm part of that faithless generation. That's why I need your help. Like what a beautiful picture of what faith looks like to acknowledge need and unbelief and all of that. So, so crazy enough, he's actually evidencing his faith by being honest about his unbelief. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter into him again. I love the 
that's added, that Jesus added that. Like, think about being that dad. And so the demon's gone. But what are you going to be wondering when you go to bed that night? Is that demon going to be back? You know, it was kind of like coming and going before. Maybe it's going to come back. And Jesus put that option out of you. Never come back again. It's beautiful. It's the heart of our Savior and our King. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. That sound like anything else we've considered in Mark's gospel? Remember back in chapter five, Jairus' little daughter came to the bedside and just lifted her right up out of death. So the father recounts the disciples' inability to help his son. But then he's confronted by Jesus with his own weakness of faith. And he acknowledges his weakness and unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. The disciples, in contrast, as we'll see, need to get better acquainted with their need. Okay, we'll look at that under point number three in just a minute. But one more thing before we move on to point number three. Look at verse 24. I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a verb that's repeated, the verb to cry out, and it's a pretty strong verb. So look at verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now look at verse 26. What cries out there? And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. Strong word. And the repetition is kind of conspicuous. Perhaps it indicates that Jesus needed to cast out the unbelief from the father's heart as well as the unclean spirit from the boy's life. Once again, hmm, there's always lots of interesting things going on when we pay attention to what Jesus is doing and saying. Point number three, who is sufficient? The last two verses of this section, verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, which in the Gospel of Mark, repeatedly, when you enter into the house, it's the place of instruction. Oftentimes, Jesus takes his disciples away after some sort of you know, teaching or situation with the crowds or whatever, and then he gives further instruction. So it's a place of instruction and discipleship. So when he had entered the house, he his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to, them, said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So it was their prayerlessness that led to their powerlessness. Again, that's like worth noting. And for what it's worth, I don't think the issue is that they didn't, they simply didn't pray in the moment when they attempted to cast out the demon that was plaguing this boy. It seems that the issue is not simply a failure in the moment, but a life of prayerlessness, a lack of dependence on God that produces a kind of spiritual strength equal to an encounter like this. Little prayer, little power. I mean, remember how Jesus 
says to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. If you don't watch and pray, you're going to be weak in the face of temptation. Watch and pray and you're going to be prepared and ready to fend off temptation when it comes. So the disciples are confronted with their weakness and inability and powerlessness. And the remedy is prayer. Not prayer in a mechanical or formulaic way. I always get a little uncomfortable when people go on and on about the power of prayer. Okay. But prayer is only powerful because of the power of the one to whom we pray. Prayer is powerful and changes things because God is powerful and changes things. The power is not in our praying. It's in the one to whom we pray. So why were they so surprised? Well, one thing to notice is, again, if, we're, if we've got the whole context of the Gospel of Mark in mind at this point, remember back in chapter 6? Jesus sent the disciples out and he gave them authority over demons to cast them out and to heal. So William Lane offers this insight here. Should be up there, yeah. So the disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus, you can look back at chapter six if you want later, was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This was a subtle form of unbelief for it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. They had to learn that their previous success in expelling demons provided no guarantee of continued power. Rather, the power of God must be asked for in radical reliance upon his ability alone, his ability alone. When faith confronts the demonic, God's omnipotence is its sole assurance and God's sovereignty is its only restriction. So they were quote unquote successful back in chapter six. So this failure surprises them. Like, what did we do wrong? And the point is that just like Jesus said in John 15, when he was instructing his disciples before he went to the cross, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do you think you could exercise power over the demons without my help, without asking, without depending on me? So the same is true for Jesus' disciples. If you're following Jesus, the same is true for us today. We have no adequacy for ministry in and of ourselves. So faith actually recognizes our human inadequacy, which then prompts us to stay dependent on and connected to Jesus. Abide in me because he is the mighty savior. He is the source of our strength. So prayer is faith on its knees. Our power is not native. Like, okay, so we started back up. And, and again, we could think about casting out demons, but any ministry, like it's easy to burn out, right? If you're a community group leader, if you're teaching kids, you know, we're all excited about the start of Awana. 
But, you know, a couple months down the road, kids are crazy, you know, blowing snot bubbles and whatever else, and your life is full, and you just get worn out. Like, where's the strength come from? Well, we need to be dependent. And there's strength for whatever ministry God calls you to. So our power is not native. We are utterly dependent on God alone for spiritual power. And unfortunately, we are way too prone to live and do ministry in our own steam. And Jesus often graciously, listen, he oftentimes graciously gets us in over our heads like the disciples were so that we stop believing the lie that we can do it ourselves. We can chafe at that, right? When we get in over our heads, like, oh man, come on. Like, throw me a bone. And instead of that prompting us to trust and depend, we scramble, we just try to, you know, busy ourselves further, or we just get frustrated with God for giving us too much, rather than praying, depending. It's a reminder of our inadequacy. It's an opportunity, an invitation even, for Jesus to show us the sufficiency of his grace. It's sufficient. His power is perfected in our weakness. I mean, didn't the Apostle Paul write of this? He experienced it and he wrote about it repeatedly. Three passages here. Quickly, kind of one after the other. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. As we lay our lives down for others, the fragrance of that sacrifice smells like Jesus who laid down his life for us. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're bringing the gospel to people. Some people, it's like the smell of life. Yes. Some people just repel it and they reject us and they, you know, scorn us and insult us. To one, fragrance from death to death. To the other, fragrance from life to life. And then Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? Living that way, laying our lives down for the sake of others, who's sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 3, 4, a little bit later, same book. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And then he goes on to talk about how it's empowered by the Spirit. And then if you fast forward to the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, near the end, Paul was worn down and weakened by the thorn in the flesh. And he prayed repeatedly the Lord would take it away. But the Lord said to him, 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we get in over our heads, it's intended to lead us to realize what's really true always, that we are powerless and insufficient. And then it leads us to 
cling to Jesus whose grace is sufficient and his power gets perfected in our weakness and we have resources to live and to love and to serve. So ministry is not ultimately ours. It belongs to Jesus and he regularly gives us more than we can handle but it's never more than he can handle. More than we can handle, not more than he can handle. We are weak, but we need not, we must not be weak in prayer, brothers and sisters. Otherwise, we're betraying the weakness of our belief in our weakness. Just making sure you're still awake. Put it the other way around. We're proudly believing we're stronger than we are if we're prayerless. So faith acknowledges our weakness and our inadequacy. The father, this father of the son with the demon, does not have faith in his faith. He has faith in Jesus. Even though it's weak, even though it's conflicted, he brings that unbelief and doubt to Jesus that Jesus would strengthen his faith. He's an example to us. So faith is trusting in Jesus' ability and power in the face of doubts and difficult circumstances that challenge that belief and make it difficult, right? Okay, so let's ponder a little bit of additional application under these last two points. So first, we're gonna consider, is there such a thing as believing doubt? Remember, ask the question at the beginning. Is all doubt sin? Or is doubt sin? And then is all doubt the same? So is there a category of believing doubt? And then secondly, what's it look like to take our doubts to Jesus? So point number four, believing doubt. Now here, I'm gonna say yes, there is such a thing as believing doubt. I'll just go ahead and throw that out. But we dare not mute or undermine either of the texts that I opened with. You know, the Matthew 14, you know, Peter and his unbelief and Jesus' rebuke of that, or James 1, and there's actually other passages. We won't time, take the time to, to consider them. So let's not mute those at all or undermine them, but I think we need to see that the Bible is more subtle and nuanced than just saying all doubt is in the same category, okay? So for instance, the questions of the disciples even though sometimes they really crossed certainly into unbelief and hard-heartedness, they were different than the questions of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were just seeking to test Jesus because they wanted to just have evidence to, to kill him. Or how about this? The question of Mary when the angel visited her and the question of Zechariah when the angel visited him. How can this be since I'm a virgin? I don't understand. I doubt how this could happen, like how this could be. But she doesn't get rebuked. She gets an explanation. Zechariah, on the other hand, doubted, and he was mute for a while as a result of it. Consider the way Jesus treated doubting Thomas. We call him doubting Thomas, right? after the resurrection. 
Again, it's kind of hard to read between the lines. I mean, maybe, maybe that was sinful or whatever, but Jesus certainly didn't rebuke him. He met Doubting Thomas in his doubts and brought him to confident faith. My Lord and my God. You have Job's struggles, righteous Job with his struggles, the struggles of so many psalmists, and they're given to us as an example of how to wrestle with questions and doubt and fight the good fight of the faith. So doubt is a normal initial reaction to uncertainty. And actually, doubt can protect you from pain, right? If you see a frozen lake that you're unsure will hold your weight, you will do well to ask someone who lives there and knows that lake and the weather the last couple weeks, or you take a big rock and you toss it out in front of you to see what happens, or you take some tentative steps at the edge before you, you know, go drive in your four-wheeler on there to set up for ice fishing. So you want something solid under your feet if you're going to put your weight on it. You don't want it to crumble underneath you. So you don't want a card house faith that is simplistic and could get blown over by the first wind of trouble and suffering. So imagine if you grew up in a church where the theology was like right out of Job's friend's manual. Wouldn't it be life-saving to have some doubts about their theological formulas and ask some questions and make sure you understand what the Bible says about suffering? Or when a child asks his parent about something he's struggling to understand, the parent doesn't berate the child for asking. The child has doubts and questions, but he's asking his parent precisely because he wants to know and understand and then act accordingly. That's a normal path of belief and confidence. So there is such a thing as believing doubt as well as unbelieving doubt, okay? So Barnabas Piper, um, he wrote a book. In fact, somebody can have this one. I'll just leave it right there. You just take it, okay? So whoever's first. Um, wrote a book called Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. And he has some categories that are pretty helpful here. The difference between unbelieving doubt and believing doubt. Unbelieving doubt asks questions in order to challenge. Believing doubt asks questions in order to learn. Unbelieving doubt takes questions to anyone but Jesus. Believing doubt takes questions directly to Jesus. Unbelieving doubt questions God's character because he's beyond our understanding. Questions his character. Believing doubt trusts in God's character because he's beyond our understanding. Unbelieving doubt says, not your will, but mine be done. Believing doubt says, not my will, but yours be done. So unbelieving doubt doesn't really want to know and trust God. Instead, it kind of wants to find a loophole or a rationale to dismiss God's goodness and authority. So unbelieving doubt resists belief. It yields to cynicism and skepticism. Believing doubt, on the other hand, resists unbelief and is actually wrestling 
for understanding because it's seeking greater faith. You see the difference? Is everybody tracking with me? Yes, no. So it actually fights cynicism and skepticism and takes that struggle to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. Do you see how it's actually evidence of belief? That you take your questions, your doubts, your struggles to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. Just like the father, Mark 9, his questions and doubts were kicked up by his circumstances. The suffering of his child, the failure of Jesus' disciples, his, here we go, his past disappointment led to his present unbelief. Does that resonate with anybody's experience? It can be our suffering, especially prolonged suffering. It can be repeated disappointments. It can be repeated unanswered prayers. Our past disappointments, our present suffering can lead to present unbelief. So doubt does not necessarily need to be the enemy of faith. Doubt can either be a servant and a stepping stone to greater faith or most certainly it can be termites or a demolition ball to erode and destroy faith. So the issue is where do we go when we struggle? How do we respond? And this father is such an example for us of taking our doubts, our unbelief, our weak faith to Jesus. I mean, can anybody say amen here? Just, I know for me, the times of the greatest strengthening of my faith have come in the context of faith struggles. Anybody? So I went through a period of time, my late 20s, early 30s, where I had a really intense fear of death and like angst level and wrestling with like, what is wrong with me? This should be settled for a Christian to live as Christ and to die as gain, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Like, and I want this for a good reason, right? Like, I'm not asking for a beach house. I'm asking for freedom from fear of death. Like, why won't you deliver? I just want to be a normal Christian. And actually, the prolonged struggle of that is what, like, drove me down. Like, I need grace. I need help. Help my unbelief to really, like, cling to Jesus and ask for help and grace for that to get settled. So the growth came through the unbelief, the doubts, the weak faith, and the struggle that you're taking to Jesus, and he ultimately strengthens you through weakening you. Or significant time when the, my faith in the goodness of God was rocked, when infidelity rocked our family. So I'm sure you've got examples as well. In the past, maybe you came in and you're right there right now. And you know what? 
if we live on <laughs> anytime, we're going to have these things come up in the future. We need to be ready. So last point, let's take our doubts to Jesus. Take our unbelief, take our weak faith to Jesus, just like this father. So if you're wrestling with doubts and unbelief this morning, first off, let's receive the rebuke. Let's humbly come to Jesus. If you can, like remember who this God-man is. Remember what we've seen already in the gospel of Mark. He's commanding the wind and the waves and they obey just immediately. The demons just cry out and tremble at his feet like he is omnipotent. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If I can, <laughs> like we need to hear that and like bow the knee. Who is this we're dealing with? He's not some small local deity, not limited. He's not overwhelmed. He's not overworked. You don't have to keep calling, you know, to try to get through to him and catch his attention. This is the eternal son of God who took on flesh and blood and entered into our story, the one that we ruined in order to reveal to us his loving, merciful, compassionate, almighty heart. Look at him casting out demons with a word. Or with a word. There is no opposition strong enough for him. This world is haunted, isn't it? All because of rebellion. Angelic rebellion, human rebellion, it's dark and broken and scary and uncertain. And the Son of God comes down light into darkness to suffer and die for our sins. The unbelief that broke the world, the vote of no confidence against God that broke the world, all so that we could be forgiven and healed and secure both now and forever. We have every reason in the world to trust him. He's good and loving and strong. That's the testimony of the whole gospel of Mark and the whole Bible. So the father brings his unbelief to Jesus. He was, <laughs> so here's something to notice. Like we see how his unbelief did not disqualify him. Like his mixed bag, I believe, I help my unbelief, didn't disqualify him from Jesus answering his request. It's kind of cool to compare that with Jairus. Jairus was confident that Jesus could heal his daughter just, you know, as long as he got to her before she died. So Jairus was confident. And then because of circumstances, you know, she died, but Jesus raised her up. This guy is not confident, but Jesus still raised up his son. Kind of reminds me of a story that Don Carson tells about the Passover. So you can imagine if you had um, two fathers at the Passover, you know, in Egypt before they were led out of Egypt. Okay, we're supposed to kill this lamb and we're supposed to put the blood over the doorposts and, you know, then the death angel will not strike our firstborn son. And you have one son who's just like totally confident, takes God at his word, totally confident, does the thing, goes to bed, sleeps peacefully that night. Another father that does the thing, you know, does what God says, and he's sleeping fitfully, and he's waking up, and he's going in and checking on the son, and he's, you know, wakes up in the morning and rushes into the room. And so which father, you know, did his son make it through the night? Which one? 
both of them. Because it wasn't about the quality of the faith of the one or the other. Same thing here. Jairus confident, this guy, mixed bag, both children delivered. Faith is only as strong as its object, and we have a strong and mighty Savior, and he's gracious and he's patient. So what does this look like, crying out in prayer? This is something to tease out in your community group. But what does this look like? Certainly it's crying out in prayer, taking our unbelief to Jesus. But I want you to just think about some practical examples as we close. Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot almost slipped. Right? Unbelief. He looks around everybody else, like all these people that seem to be just like, you know, doing their own thing. They don't care what God's will is. They don't care about following, following God. And they're just peaceful and happy. And I'm struggling. Like, what's up? And he's doubting the goodness and care of God until he gets in God's presence and realizes, no, actually, they're the ones that are in trouble. Like, you're my good. I was like a brute beast before you. So there's a pattern right there of what it looks like to take your unbelief and wrestle through to faith by bringing it to Jesus. Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. This is normal. Like, We've got to take our unbelief, our doubts, our struggles to Jesus. Or how about something like this? Psalm 23.1, let's say that's your reading for, you know, your Bible reading plan tomorrow morning. And you're really struggling with getting passed over at work for a promotion that you deserve and somebody else got. You're really frustrated because other people seem to be doing great. You're scrolling Instagram and they're just like living their best life now and you are struggling left, right, and center. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Do you always just say hearty amen? No qualifications. Never struggle with that. No, I mean, we feel like we're lacking. What about me? Why can't I? I mean, just covetousness and grumbling and complaining and envy and all this stuff. So what do you do with that? Just finish the psalm, check off the box, and go to work. No. Oh, God. I believe. I know you are my good shepherd. I know you're good. I know you're loving. And I know that you are in control. And even the hard things and the lack are from you because you have good purposes that you're working out in my life. Help me trust you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Romans 8 is like an amazing, awesome chapter filled with so much grace and it's a place where we can chafe at truth when we are suffering. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present life not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. And some people have struggled so deeply, have suffered so deeply, they're just like, well, maybe that's true for somebody else. Help me, I believe, help my unbelief. Or, you know, people, maybe some of, maybe some of Jesus' disciples have thrown Romans 8.28 at you in a really flippant way, and you kind of want to 
chafe at Romans 8.28 rather than fight to believe that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I believe, help my unbelief. We could go on and on. Even like in the face of temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man and God is faithful and he will always provide a way of escape. But, but I, we, we wanna just explain and give like a justification and rationalization, blame shift and, well if, if this wouldn't have, no, I believe, help my unbelief, I am so prone to point the finger over there and, and justify and blame shift my sin rather than, I believe Lord, help my unbelief. I, you did provide a way of escape, I just didn't want it. So, we're gonna close with a song that is a prayer that the Lord would speak to us and that we would hear his word and respond with faith. So let's sing this song as a prayer, echoing the prayer of this father, which hopefully echoes in our minds and in our hearts throughout this week and beyond. I believe, help my unbelief. So let's pray and then we're gonna sing. Lord Jesus, you are good and you are strong and mighty and we are way too prone to doubt your promises and your character and your goodness and your kindness. And I pray that we would make war not against you actively or passively, but that we would make war against our unbelief and that we would take our doubts and unbelief to you. And I pray that you would deliver us and strengthen us just like you did for this, this father and his dear child. In your name we pray, amen.